I'm convinced that the Roman church, when they got this letter from Paul, read it again and again and again. Paul's writings are amazing. But I remind you that it is not the apostle who's amazing. This is God's Word. And whether we're in one of the letters of Paul inspired by the Spirit of God or reading the prophet Isaiah or studying Moses' writing of the Torah, it really makes no difference. The same Spirit is author of all that we're reading and studying here. And I truly do believe that. I don't just believe that because that's what I was taught. I believe it because I see the connection and the intricacy and the the unity of Scripture. I see that within the Word of God and without, it, it all points to the veracity the truth of God's Word. That's why I'm not one of those who comes along and says, yeah, well, Paul was a chauvinist, so I'm going to throw out everything that he said. He talks about olive trees in this. He also was no horticulturist, because what he describes here, no olive tree can do. Well, we'll get there. It doesn't really matter who Paul was, what Paul was, what his training was. He was brilliant as a human being. He was highly trained, both in Greek thought and in Hebrew learning. He was, you know, in the upper echelon of Israel when his life got spun around and completely trashed for his purposes and brought into that glorious place for God's purposes. But what's great about this letter is not the apostle. It's the Spirit. And so we continue on. We're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How He pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed Your prophets. They have torn down Your altars. And I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to Him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now we have been looking into the faithfulness of God. Romans 9, 10, and 11, that is the, the substance, that's the focus of the whole thing. And yes, it is doctrine about Israel, and it is theological understanding of God's plan for the Jewish people, but that is not the very heart of it. The heart of this is God's faithfulness. And as we've seen throughout Romans, we've seen God's righteousness poured out, given, offered to us. Now we're in this place of His faithfulness as revealed in His very special relationship with Israel. And it was a a relationship established by God's choice. Note that. Abraham didn't choose God, nor did Isaac, nor did Jacob. God chose them. God called them. God chose this people. And please know that a relationship with God, any relationship with God, always begins with His choice. Long before you chose Him, He chose you. He wanted you. He longed for you. And He foreknew exactly what you would choose. Can you imagine that? The foreknowledge of God that He foreknows who's going to choose Him, and He also foreknows who will reject Him. I'm glad I don't know that. You know, it's hard enough being rejected face-to-face by somebody when you're not expecting it. 
But to have a lifetime of knowing on this particular day, on May the 4th, and by the way, May the 4th be with you, on this particular day, someone's going to reject me. And to know that for years ahead of time, I would just sink into despair. God knows who will choose and who will reject. As Jesus said, John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. What a comforting thought. But what happens when a chosen one rejects that choice? Now again, with me, someone rejects me. Hey, that's fine. Game over. You don't want to be in a relationship with me? I don't have a problem with that. I have friends. I have family. I will be just fine. I honestly don't really care to be surrounded by disobedient, obstinate people. What does God do with Israel? Who, at least nationally speaking, rejected Him. Well, they rejected Jesus, exactly. God in the flesh. God, wearing an earth suit, walking among us, rejected by the very people that He chose. What does He do with Israel? Verse 5 says, In the same way then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice, or literally His choice of grace. He chose. And even though they reject, His choice stands. His choice doesn't fall. His choice does not change. We're going to look at five amazing realities related to the choice of God tonight, related truly to His faithfulness. Five points. I'll give them to you right now. So you can keep track as we go and know how long we're spending on each particular point if you'd like to do that. Remnant is number one. Remnant. Secondly, revolution. Remnant, revolution. Thirdly, root. Root. Number four, restoration. And finally, riches. Remnant, revolution, root, restoration, riches. That will outline the chapter for us tonight. And we begin with the remnant. Paul starts out here in Romans 11 as he kicks it into high gear, reaching back nearly 900 years in Israel's history from Paul's day in the first century, 900 years back to express a current first century reality that I believe is yet a reality today, 2,000 years after that. So from our perspective, we go back 2,900 years, from Paul's 900 years, and maybe you know the story. It's the story of Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah the Tishbite. Elijah, his name means Yahweh is God. What a great name. Pretty clear and simple right there. Eli-Jah. El, God. Eli-Jah. Yah for Yahweh. Yahweh is God. In 1 Kings 17... Elijah prayed and he shut up the sky from rain for three years. I know some of you here in Washington would like to do the same thing. In 1 Kings chapter 18, after that amazing moment, he stood up at Karin Carmel against 450 uh, prophets of Baal. 450 and another 400 of Asherah. That's 850 to 1 odds. That's not really fair teams. Except that it's Elijah and God, so that pretty much overthrows the rest. And Elijah, you know the story, he prevailed. Make an altar, make a sacrifice, let's see if your God answers with fire from heaven. Nothing happens. 
They danced, they sang, they partied, they gashed themselves until they bled. Nothing happened. And all the while, Elijah's just taunting them. Remember the story? Maybe your guy's taking a nap. Maybe bails in the bathroom, or maybe he just bailed. He's just not answering. And then, of course, Elijah prepares his altar, digs a trench around it, fills the trench with barrels of water, pours it all over the stone, soaking everything, soaking the sacrifice and the wood on top. Fire comes down out of heaven and licks the whole thing completely dry. It's a remarkable story. And Elijah takes those false prophets down into the valley, right below Karen Carmel, to the Kishon Brook, where their blood ran red as he slew them all. I like this guy. Then Elijah from there goes back up to the top of Mount Carmel. And this tough, prophet-facing, false prophet-facing, sky-shutting-up prophet himself, he gets in the birthing position. Well, that's just weird. What man in his right mind would get into the birthing position? Or ballet? Last night was parent participation night, my daughter's ballet class. I have avoided this for years. I just have one thing to say. I can barely walk today. It's painful. It should be a sport in the Olympics. I'm impressed. Anyway, he gets into the birthing position and he prays up a storm. Awesome. He says to his, his little servant, he says, go out and look. You see anything? No, there's nothing on the horizon. Go out and look again. He goes out. Hey, there's a hand-sized cloud out there that's kind of sprung up off the Mediterranean. Cool. Now what's it doing? It's getting bigger. And the next thing you know, the entirety of Israel is under a deluge of downpouring rain. Stop the rain. And now he calls it back in. And in 1 Kings 19, and you need to know that background because after all of that, Listen to what happens next. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In other words, Elijah, I'm gunning for you. I'm going to take you out. And Elijah who shut up the sky and reopened it, who slew the 850 prophets, who called down fire from heaven, this Elijah was afraid and arose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he, mighty Elijah, awesome, powerful, false prophet killing, sky shutting up, fire from heaven bringing Elijah, sits down under this tree and requested for himself that he might die. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Elijah. You know why I love Elijah? Because James in the New Testament writes, James 5.17, that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That word nature like ours, homeopathos. He was a man with like passions, with like sensibilities, with like emotions. Elijah got angry. Elijah got happy. 
many, many times Elijah got depressed. In fact, some think that Elijah suffered from severe depression. Because here he is after all this glory. He is suicidal. He's just done. He's wiped out. Because one Jezebel shoots off her mouth. And wants him dead. And now Elijah, he's feeling it, man. You know what was the, was the power of Elijah? The power of Elijah was not the personality. It wasn't the presence of Elijah. It was the prayer. He was a man just like you, Daniel. Just like you. I'm not saying that you're a crybaby. Don't get me wrong. A man just like Daniel. And yet, what was the power? He prayed. He's a man just like Shorty. He prayed. He was just like all of us. And he prayed. That was the power. James 5.17 says he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Why? Because he prayed. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Ironically, the one time we see Elijah not really praying was the one time he needed it most. Personally. He's not praying, he's just asking for his execution. He's not praying, he's just saying, God, kill me now. That's not prayer. That's just pathetic. Are you like that? You spend all kinds of time praying for everyone else, but when it comes to yourself, you forget you're in the same relationship with the same God that you petition for other people. Well, I'll pray for you, but I don't need any prayers. Come on. If you have a nature like Elijah's, you need prayer. And every one of us, there's no such thing as a Christian who is not a person of prayer. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a man, you are a woman of prayer. It is our nature, it is our calling, it is our first line of contact with the Father. Before this, before we open His Word, before we study to show ourselves approved to the Lord, we pray, we talk to our Father, we are in relationship with Him. Don't forget that. Don't forget that Jesus said, I'm with you always, Matthew 28, 20, to the very end of the age. Don't forget that Jesus said, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he's not talking about the sweet by and by. He's not talking about the end of the age. Oh, he's coming. But he will come to you right now, tonight, if you're depressed, if you feel like someone's against you. If life is not turning out well, if you're in pain or sorrow or sickness or misery, pray. Because Elijah was just like you, and you are just like Elijah. Well, back in Romans chapter 11, listen to verse 3 again, quoting Elijah, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and that's where he was wrong. I'm all by myself in this, Lord. I'm the only one who cares, the only one who understands. I'm the last man standing, and they are seeking for my life. And I love this, Paul says, what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God really gets Elijah alone. Forty days and nights later, He draws Elijah all the way down to the south, down to southern Midian, Saudi Arabia today, to a mountain called Horeb, the Mount of the Lord. Same mount where they received the commandments of God. And Elijah comes down to this mountain, ends up in a cave, 
And God shows up. And you know He didn't show up in a great shaking wind. And He didn't show up in a mighty earthquake or a blazing fire. No, He showed up in a gentle blowing. The literal translation of the words in the Hebrew is a small or a fine whisper. Which I think is what Elijah needed. He didn't need power. He needed understanding. He needed gentleness. He needed kindness. And the whisper said, God said, You're not alone. You're not alone, Elijah. I've got 7,000 people that are still worshiping me. Now that might not seem like a great number compared to the full size of Israel, but man, it's still a number. It's still 7,000 people, a remnant. Verse 5. There has also come to be, at the present time, Paul writes, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Note that grace is never something you can earn or work for. If you work for it, it's not grace. It's wages. And we talked about that before where Paul said in Romans 3, the wages of sin is death because you can work for sin. You can work for condemnation all you want. Not grace. The gift of God is grace in Jesus Christ our Lord. The remnant. That key word, remnant, and it is huge in this section. It is lima in the Greek. Lima. And it's either translated remnant or remainder, and it's used 82 times in the Old Testament. The vast majority of times that the word remnant is used in the Old Testament is referring to Israel. The very first time the word is used, first mention of the word remnant, you might want to note this, is Genesis 45, verse 7, where Joseph is speaking to his brothers. And he says, God sent me before you to preserve preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. What did Joseph recognize? Simply that he was sent ahead, even though his brothers sold him out into slavery, he would go in and out of prison in Egypt, but ultimately rise up to second only to Pharaoh and his brothers show up. And you know what Joseph's attitude was? Guys, this was God's will all along. He sent me on down ahead. Well, I thought we sold you out. No, that's what you thought. But God sent me ahead to preserve this family. What family? The family of Israel. The sons of Jacob, of which Joseph was one. He sent me ahead to preserve a remnant. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 11, the last time this is mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures. God says, now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. And the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. The remnant that Joseph was to protect so that Israel and his family could come on into Egypt and be saved during the famine. That remnant, same remnant, God says, in the very end of time, I will still have them here. I will still preserve them for myself. And they are the ones who will inherit what? The kingdom. God's remnant. Now, while it's used all over the place in the Hebrew Scriptures, referring to Israel, referring to a number within Israel who are always with God, who are always faithful, who are always trusting Him, though the majority may not, the remnant does, the word is only used two times 
in the New Testament Scriptures, and both by Paul, right here in this section. In Romans chapter 9, verse 27, quoting Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. And the other time is right here in verse 5. There has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. On the surface, a remnant seems paltry. At least by national comparison. If you were to look at the remnant of Israel today in the land of Israel, it is not the majority, not even close. Now that remnant is growing remarkably, but it is still a small little number. Remnants always are. I always get sad at the end of the evening. Cheryl and I will often watch TV and we'll, we'll have dinner. We'll have like, we love to have apples and cheese. That's kind of a staple lately in our house. We'll be eating apples and cheese. And at the beginning of whatever show we're watching and I got a full plate of apples and cheese, it's great. I love right then. But like in 20 minutes I get sad. Because there's like two pieces of cheese and an apple. And a little apple slice. That's all that's left. And I know when I eat that, it's done. It's over. All there is for it is to go to sleep at that point. Sanctuary has ended for the day. It's just a little remnant. It's not the full plate, but gang, a remnant with God is awesome. Don't ever worry that there's not enough Christians in this age. Don't ever worry that we're being overtaken by the sin sickness of the world. Don't worry about it. How many people did Noah have with him? Seven. In the world. Talk about a remnant. That was about as small as the remnant ever got. Seven people. Noah, Mrs. Noah, and the kids and their wives. Joseph had his 70. Elijah had his 7,000. Be encouraged. Don't worry. It doesn't matter what the end result is of the election. It doesn't matter what the decisions are of man, what the laws and the rules that are set into place. It doesn't matter how foolish and stupid and ridiculous it all seems to be. It doesn't matter the kind of pressure we come under as followers of Jesus. It doesn't matter if we're a remnant who follow God. If God is on our side, if we are on His, rather, if we are following Jesus, there are always a few of God's people hanging around. And you can trust that. And let me encourage you. I am totally preaching the choir tonight. You're a wonderful choir. You sing beautifully. Gang, you're here. You're here on a Wednesday night in the middle of the week. And I pray that it blesses you. To be part of the remnant. It doesn't matter if the sanctuary is packed out or not. The packing is not where the power is. Two or three. Gathered in my name, Jesus says, and I am there. You show me any time where two or three Christians are gathered, and Jesus is there. And I love to be in that place. So take heart. Maybe you have a small group that you meet with, and there's only three or four of you, and you're not like Glenn's small group that has 72 or more, I think. 73, something like that. I'm kidding, bro. Maybe you just have a handful of people and you get together with on a weekly basis and you're like, well, we're just our little, just trucking along, our little group. Praise the Lord, He's there. How more powerful can it get than that? It's never about the numbers. We see the numbers and we start to freak out if we see them shrinking, not the Lord. I love what Paul said to Philemon. A tiny little one-chapter letter, the book of Philemon. It's one that we will blaze through on one night. In fact, we may even just throw it in with another study. It's so short and quick. 
But Philemon, Paul says to this guy, I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. That line caught me. The fellowship of your faith. You see, my faith is in fellowship. Two or three or four or five or sixty or seventy or however many people show up at any given time, however many people gather in the name of Jesus, my faith is in that fellowship because the Lord is there. And I am encouraged. The remnant of Scripture, however, is not the church. And there are those over the years who have tried to uh, conscript this for the church and say, no, the church is now the remnant, Israel is out, and now we are it. We are not the remnants. We are the church. And the church, by the way, in the world is massive. And the church across 2,000 years is a multitude of multiplied millions and millions of people, more than we can count. When we stand around the throne, we will be shocked. We will all be members of a big church. So those of you who like little churches, sorry. Ain't no such thing in heaven. It's huge. We are not the remnant. Israel in Scripture is always the remnant, and it always points to Israel. And Paul himself is saying, look, I'm part of the present deal. In the first century, I'm part of the remnant. You know, there were others, apostles and and other Christians, followers of the Lord. There were Jews who were the remnant of Israel. Prisca and Aquila and others. And Paul was one of those, but he clarifies here in verse 5 that the current remnant, again, was only by God's gracious choice, or again, literally, His chosen grace. That's why they're a remnant. Now you might ask a question, okay, but if God has chosen grace, why is there only a remnant? Have you ever wondered that? If it's by grace that we are saved, why? Isn't the entire world saved? Does it get any easier than that? At least for us, it wasn't easy for God. It cost Jesus every last drop of His blood. But why aren't more people flocking to church? If it's by grace, don't people want grace? I want grace. I love grace. Grace thrills me. It's something I cannot achieve and I cannot do. And you would think that if that message got out into the world, we couldn't keep people out of churches. I think part of the problem is maybe churches are doing a really good job keeping people out on their own because of all the laws and religion and and rules that are applied. It's grace, man. So why, if it's grace, why is there only a remnant? Look at verse 7. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Remember this. God has chosen those who choose Him. Right? He knows who's going to choose Him, and so He chooses those who He knows will choose Him. Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. But the reason people don't choose God is actually very simple. It's like the majority of Israel chasing after the Baals in Elijah's day. It's like the majority of Israel who chastened Messiah just prior to Paul's day. The rule and the issue is they became hardened. 
They became hardened. The word in the Greek there is poruo, which, which is where we get the, the noun form of the verb is porosis. We use that word, osteoporosis. Now the word peruo in the verb means to make hard or to render insensitive. They became hardened. The rest were insensitive. What's interesting is we get this word porous from peruo and also porosis as in again osteoporosis. What is osteoporosis? It's a weakening of the bones. Now that confused me for a minute because well if it's osteoporosis and Peruo, the root of that word, means a hardening. What's the deal with that? Well, it turns out that peruo means to make hard by way of becoming brittle. It's where we get our word porous. You know, and, and there are hard woods that are porous. And bones are porous, but as bones dry up, that the porousness of the bones leads to a brittleness, and that's exactly what hardening does to the heart. That as a heart hardens, it gets weaker and it becomes brittle and more susceptible to fracture. Paul says that's what's going on in Israel. The heart is hard. It's it's brittle. It's breaking up. And that's the issue. And then Paul gives three passages from the Old Testament to testify of this hardening. That long before Paul talks about it, so did Isaiah. So did Moses. So did David. The three passages, just note these, and they may be in your margins in your Bible. Isaiah 29, verse 10, Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, and Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. Listen to Paul recount them. Verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. That's Isaiah 29, 10. Eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Deuteronomy 29, verse 4. And David says, Psalm 69, 22, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. And then in Psalm 69, 23, Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Paul said this was all talked about. This was warned. The people of Israel were told thousands of years ago by God, centuries before Paul, they were told a hardening's coming. You're going to become insensitive. You're going to become brittle. Your hearts will break up. Because, well, I won't tell you why, because Paul will tell us that in just a minute. But listen to this. One of these three sections, Isaiah 29, Deuteronomy 29, Psalm 69, is prophetic specifically of Jesus. And it's Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is drawn, the the early writers of the New Testament drew off of Psalm 69 to describe Jesus many times. One of those, John, in his Gospel, chapter 2, verse 17, quotes Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. Or Psalm 69, verse 4. John recounts that in John 15, 25. Here's the verse. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful being wrongfully my enemies. Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me before it hated you. And then Psalm 69, verse 20. Perhaps the most profound moment in the psalm. Listen to this. I looked for sympathy. And there was none. 
and for comforters, and I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And that is exactly what Matthew tells us, Matthew 27, 34. That's exactly what happened on the cross. They gave him gall mixed with with vinegar to drink. Gall's a painkiller. Jesus rejected it. You know that? He could have had something that would numb the pain. They would give gall mixed with vinegar or some kind of wine vinegar to people up on a cross because they would be so thirsty they'd have to take something and they would take that gall and it would numb the pain for a time so they could hang on the cross longer. It was complete brutality on the part of the Romans. Jesus rejected the gall. He would not spend a moment on the cross too long, but He would also not spend a moment on the cross without feeling every single pain. And Psalm 69 is prophetic of exactly that. And now Paul quotes immediately from what follows that crucifixion passage, Psalm 69.22, May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so that they cannot see, and may their loins shake continually. And what does all this tell us as Paul draws in? I told you Sunday, 32 to 33 verses from the Hebrew Scriptures are spoken or written by Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11. This is an intense, in-depth history of Israel Bible study as Paul's laying the truth of Israel and God's faithfulness out before us. But right after that crucifixion moment, Paul then continues on and it tells us what Paul's saying here is that the hardened majority are often, get this, are often strongly opposed to the remnant. Which should make some sense out of things that we see in the world today. Let me say that again. The hardened majority is often illogically opposed to the little remnant. Why? It just doesn't make sense. And in Israel's case, this tiny little postage stamp in the middle of the Middle East, one-sixth of one percent, what is the rest of the Middle East worried about? Why is this a problem? This tiny little country here. Because the hardened majority are opposed to God's remnant. Why do we see it in our schools? In the workplace? Why do we see it in American culture today that more and more Christians are are maligned and picked on? Because the hardened majority are opposed to the remnant. Don't like that smaller group who believe in God, trust in God, love the Lord. But again, don't worry about it because there are are always a few Christians hanging around. Always. And you have probably heard this before. You and God, you make a majority. And I would far rather be the last man standing on earth and be in the presence of the Lord than be in the majority. And get this. God's remnant, the remnant of His gracious choice, packs a powerful punch. In the Great Tribulation, the remnant, according to Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9, we talked about this Sunday, the remnant of Israel will ultimately only number a third of all the Jews alive at that time. Two-thirds will perish in that tribulation period. One-third will be brought through the fire and be purified and be God's people and they will call on the name of the Lord. A remnant. Truly a remnant. Of that one-third... Revelation tells us that 
144,000 are sealed for a powerful ministry. A ministry that will last three and a half years, 144,000 Jews spreading out around the world, and it will bring about, it will cause, based on my understanding of Revelation 7, an unparalleled evangelistic campaign. McGee says all of the evangelistic campaigns of 2,000 years of the church will not touch what this one's going to do in terms of the number of people who will be saved. And Revelation 7 details this, multiplied millions beyond those who could be counted under the throne, and they're there, and they are people who came out of the tribulation, people who were saved in the tribulation right after the 144,000 Jews are sealed and sent out to proclaim the gospel. All God needs is a remnant. All He needs is a handful of people who will be faithful to Him to work His plan in and among humanity. Revelation chapter 7 verse 4 lists out that power team, if you will, the Jewish evangelistic power team of 12,000 from each one of the 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000. And all the tribes are listed with the exception of Dan, which we can look at another time. But... Listen to the result of the remnant. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, And palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice. And then it goes on to share the song. In Revelation 7 verse 13, one of the elders said to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And why or where have they come from? And I, this is John speaking, says, My Lord, you know. In other words, what are you asking me for? And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A massive salvation. Why? Because a remnant of faithful Jews will speak the word. God working through a remnant. And remember, by the way, back in Romans 11, how this all began. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. Of course He hasn't rejected His people. Those whom He foreknew. His plan is still lined up. His plan is still underway. And the Lord will raise up a remnant of His covenant people at just the right time. Now, verse 11. Romans 11, verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. I love that. Paul here begins to unpack now God's remarkable plan for both Israel and the church and how he's making the whole thing work. And it is what I would call, secondly, a revolution. Revolution. This is not a new plan. It's just that Paul is revealing how this is working. How it's beginning to be realized in the world. And he says in Romans 11.11, he he quotes from, he leans on the song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. 
God says, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Paul says, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And he's looking back to that song of Moses. God says, that's exactly what I'm going to do. That's the plan. I'm going to make my chosen people jealous by choosing the foolish nation, the Goyim, the Gentiles. Gentiles is Goyim, nations in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jews today use it as a byword for you and for me. They call us Goys. Oh yeah, he's such a goy. And it is a Jewish put-down for the Gentile. It's okay. I don't mean mind being called a goy. I happen to be a grafted goy. We'll get there. But don't be offended here. Moses in this song refers to the Gentiles as a foolish goyim. A foolish nation. I'm going to make them jealous by this foolish nation. Well, we are. Or we were. At least at one time, we were without understanding. Back in Romans 10 verse 19, I say, surely Israel did not know. First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding, will I anger you. To be foolish is simply to be without understanding. To be a foolish nation means we were at one point a nation, a people, a goyim, Gentiles, who didn't know. Who didn't have a clue what was really going on in the commonwealth of Israel, what that was all about, and who God really was. We were on the outside of that, historically, God says. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. But, Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. But if you're among those who have chosen the Lord, who foreknew your choice and therefore chose you, you seek that. You begin to fear the Lord. And that fear turns into wisdom and understanding and knowledge. It opens a heart. That awe, that respect, that worshipful attitude toward God changes everything. And suddenly the foolish nation that becomes a real nation becomes an actual people by simple faith. We come out of our foolishness and into the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, By His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God.